Well, good morning, Biltmore Church. How's everybody doing today? We good? Yeah, okay, we're gonna have a little fun today, whether you like it or not. And so you guys are gonna figure out a way to get engaged at some point along the way. I wanna give a shout out to all those joining us online and also to our Franklin campus. Then also to all the folks right here at Arden, man. We doing good today? Yes, great, what a beautiful weekend. Um, Man, you know, this is how I know that summer's here when I got that watch tan right there rocking in full effect. That's how you know I've been outside too much with my watch on. So, well, anyway, my name is Jason Gaston, and uh, I serve as one of the pastors here at Biltmore Church, and it's an honor uh, to be with you um, today to open up God's Word and to, and to be in the Gospel of John. We're going to continue our series through the Gospel of John, and so if you have your Bibles, you need to go ahead and turn them on. You can go ahead and turn them on or open them up to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, where we will be today. And um, as you're turning there, just a couple quick things for you. Man, what a great honor it was to just stop and to, uh, and to join our hearts together to pray for the tragedy uh, that has happened this past week. Uh, man, I, I know that as you guys uh, are anything like me, you sat there in tears, um, overcome with sadness and grief and unsure uh, of how to even process such horrific sinfulness uh, and tragedy. Um, but as we were reminded just a few minutes ago during our prayer time, we, we lift our eyes up to the hills where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord, the maker and creator of, of heaven and earth. It doesn't explain away the senselessness, but it does give us a hope in the midst of tragedy. Does it not, church? It does, it does. And uh, last week also, uh, we, we also saw something incredible happen right here at Biltmore Church. We saw over 100 people uh, get baptized. They took their next step. The stories of people that got to the parking lot. Yeah, you can celebrate that. <laughs> stories of, of men and women who got to the parking lot and did a U-turn and said, I need to get baptized today. I'm coming back in. Stories of people who were watching online and said, I'll be there in 10 minutes, got in their cars and drove to campuses. Stories of parents who were praying for their kids to give their life to Christ. And it happened. You guys, the spirit of God is moving here at Biltmore Church. And I hope and pray that you can see it just as clearly as I can, because God is on the move and he's using you, the church, to advance his kingdom here in Western North Carolina. So here's what we're gonna do today, okay? You're gonna look at a neighbor. If you're online, you can drop it in the chat. Whether you're at the Franklin campus, or you're right here at Arden, you're gonna look at a neighbor and you're gonna look at the neighbor on your right and the uh, neighbor on your left. You're gonna say to them, you are at the right place at the right time. Right now, go ahead, say it right now, boom. I believe it. All right, I'm gonna put my watch back on so y'all aren't staring at my pale wrist the whole time today, Okay. 2007, um, I had the opportunity to complete what I had on my list as a bucket list item, okay? I'd saved up all of my frequent flyer miles on Delta, and uh, I was going to the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska to do what every man who loves the outdoors was gonna do. I was gonna fish for salmon. Ugh, a little grunt right there, okay? So I loaded up, I went with one of my best friends uh, at the time, a guy by the name of Matt Hahn. He has an uncle that lives in Soldatna. And so we got to Alaska, we unpacked. And as soon as we got there, we had the song blaring north to Alaska the whole time and we were living the dream. And as soon as we landed, we pulled out the rods and we went directly to the Kenai River where the salmon run was in full effect. Literally every cast, I'd throw it out there, that line would just buzz, reeling them in, throwing them on the line. We had an incredible time. Stayed there for seven, almost eight days, fishing from sun up to sun up, because the sun literally never goes down. And so it's like 11 o'clock at night and you are fishing. It's the most bizarre thing on planet Earth. 
And by the time it was time to go, you know, you'd catch the fish, you'd, you'd do everything, you'd, you'd fix the fish right there, you'd eat it while you're there. But man, the thing I wanted more than anything was to do what every man wants to do. We wanted to provide, right? And so I loaded up four coolers full of salmon to ship back home, okay? That's a lot of salmon, by the way. That's a lot of salmon. Packed in tight, had the ice all in there. Back then, I don't think Yeti was a thing, okay? So I'm pretty sure I just had an old igloo, duct tape like 47 times, all right? And so loaded that thing up, got on the plane, headed back to Raleigh-Durham. I get, off, uh, I get off the plane in Raleigh-Durham and I head downstairs and I go to baggage claim. Out in baggage claim comes cooler number one. I'm like, let's go! Out in baggage claim comes my suitcase. I'm like, all right, I got underwear for the rest of the week. We're good, okay? But then I waited, and 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 three of my four coolers never came. So I went to that little office known as Purgatory down in baggage claim where that poor woman was sitting, and I went in there red hot, okay? I was hot. You guys like understand my anger at that point? I went in there hot. I was like, ma'am, where are my coolers? She said, sir, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know where my coolers are? She said, sir, I don't know. Where did you fly through? So I had to pull out all my itinerary. Back then it wasn't on an iPhone. I literally had paper that I unfolded from my backpack. I put it on. I said, it's right here. Check it out. She said, let me see what I can do. So she spends about an hour and then it turned into two. Then it turned into three different hours that had gone by looking for my coolers that I had entrusted to the airline to get it from point A to point B. Now, I'd also made a stop, this is in the middle of July, by the way, I made a stop in Atlanta, which also is purgatory. And um, she located my cooler. She said, sir, your coolers are on the tarmac in Atlanta. I said, well, I need you to get them here ASAP. She said, I'm afraid I can't do that. I said, why not? She said, well, sir, we have to go through the process. They'll be here in three to five days. How could you know where my luggage is know where my coolers are. Do you know what I went through? I used up every, every single airline mile that I had with your airline to get from here to Alaska to have the trip of a lifetime where I would come home and I would feed my family for the next 10 years with the salmon because we actually didn't eat it that much. She's like, I understand, sir. I understand your frustration. I said, no, you don't. You don't understand how frustrated I am. It is sitting on the tarmac in Atlanta. It's the middle of July. That fish is literally cooking on the runway right now. And you can't get it here. She said, sir, we'll get your stuff to you in three to five days. How does, listen, how does an airline that, how does an airline that I love, that I entrusted everything to, how do they lose something like that? How? Well, the reality is, is that they did not place as much value on my contents as I did. They, they didn't care as deeply about those three coolers that were sitting on the tarmac in Atlanta as I did. I needed them to have a perspective change about what I cared about. Now, have you ever been in a situation like that where you're talking to somebody and you're like, why do you not care as much about this as I do? Interestingly enough, when you come to the Gospel of John in chapter four, we're gonna find a story about a world, a culture that cared very little about something or someone. And Jesus flips the script and he breaks the mold entirely and says, I value this, now I need you to see this as well. 
Now, before we get into the Gospel of John chapter 4 today, we need to do a little recap on what's going on in the Gospel of John, the first three chapters, and, and really a broad stroke as what's happening in the Gospel of John as a whole. So there's a common theme that runs all throughout the Gospel of John, and it is the theme of life, okay? Life. We're going to practice something here, okay? When I point to you, all right, when I point to you just like this, all right, Franklin Campus online, I want you to say it too, okay? When I do this, I want you guys to say Life, not rocket science. Can we do that? Okay, let's try it. You ready? Okay, you can do better than that. You ready? Hey. Okay, life. Okay, great. All right, this is going to be really easy. I'm going to show you how the theme of life keeps popping up over and over and over again throughout the gospel of John. John chapter one, verse four, the writer says, in him was... Okay, we're gonna, okay, you guys see what we're doing now? You, are you guys tracking with me? Okay, when I point, you say life. You don't even need your Bibles. This is like, here you go, okay? John 1, 4, in him was? Okay, great. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting Ooh, we're on fire. John 3, 36, he who believes in him has? John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of? John 10, 10, he says, I have come that they may have and have, oh, I doubled you up, and have life to the full, life abundantly. John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the, you guys are killing it. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the, John 20, verse 31, we, Pastor Bruce mentioned this a couple weeks ago. This is the, the summation. This is a theme verse of what the gospel of John is all about except for it's in the end of the book. He says, I write these things to you that you may believe in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. Okay. So as you read the gospel of John, what you see is Jesus has come that the people may have life. but they've been looking for it in all the wrong places. You see, we all have a posture upon which we posture our lives, and that posture tells us upon which we think we find our life, our value. Now, if you back up one chapter from John chapter 4, you see something fascinating going on. Jesus encounters a great religious leader in John chapter 3. That religious leader's name is Nicodemus. And he is in the thick of it, showing that the religious elite the best of the best, the one that's well thought of within the church, within the local believing community, the one that the people looked up to, even he was in desperate need of life, the one that was at the top. But then when you get to John chapter 4, Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he's on his way to Galilee and he stops at a place and has a conversation with somebody that is the lowest of the lows. That everybody on the planet is in need of life. Good, okay, John chapter four, we'll start in verse four. And he, so Jesus has left Jerusalem, he's on his way to Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. That in and of itself is a fascinating statement. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. 
It was about the sixth hour. It was noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, a little context. If you've been around church for a while, you're going to know a little bit of the disdain that the Jews had with the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a very small, despised, hated community of people in Israel. That hatred did not just like fester up within the last 20 or 30 years. That hatred dated back over a thousand years. You see, the northern part of Israel had seceded from the south and they went their own way and they strayed from God. And so in 722 BC, God punishes them by allowing the hated Assyrians to come in and conquer the northern people. Now, in those days, when you conquered a people, you didn't just come in, conquer them, kill them all, whatever. You didn't just come in, move in, be like, hey, we're neighbors now, things are good. You wanted to change the whole dynamic and makeup of the people as a whole. So they would do a couple different things. They would, they would carry off the majority people into exile where they would make them slaves and concubines. Doesn't sound like a great life, right? No thank you, okay? So these people would lose their cultural identity. They had no distinct identity. And then they would send a bunch of their people into that place to breed with them, to literally intermarry and to populate so that people could be no more. Bible historians tell us that the Northern Kingdom of Israel didn't resist this integration. They freely embraced it with the Assyrians And they married them and they integrated their culture and religion into their Judaism. So they basically didn't, they didn't push back. They embraced this this new conquering. They embraced this new cultural identity. And those are the people now that we know as the Samaritans. So the southern kingdom of Israel, which thought of themselves as the only real Israel left, they were the best of the best. They were the elite of the elite. They were the the pure of the pure. They viewed the Samaritans as compromisers. They were, as many people have said, religious half-breeds. They were mutts. Around 100 BC, a, a renegade Jew named Manasseh defects to Samaria. And while he's there, he actually establishes new places of worship. He sets up places where they would come. He takes places that are already there and play. And he says, hey, listen, what's going on in Jerusalem is not right. What's going on here is right. He claimed that the Jewish temple was corrupt. And so he's establishing a new sect that literally is the Samaritans. They're almost like a cult. The Samaritans started to despise the Jews. You see, we think it's just one way. We think that the Jews hated the Samaritans, but the reality is the Samaritans also hated the Jews. In fact, they they hated the Jews so much that they started to get rid of things in in the Bible that were pro-Jewish, like the Psalms. They wouldn't even read the Psalms in their literature because it was was too pro-Jewish. There was so much hatred and so much disdain between the, the Jews and the Samaritans that the Jews would not even go through the area of Samaria. They would add on to their journey six days worth of travel just to go around. Six days. Now they did that for two reasons. They did that because if they went through Samaria, they would most likely die. They'd be killed. 
And then the second thing is, is if they go through, they go through Samaria, they see themselves just from being in proximity with the Samaritan. Even if they don't even come in contact with one, they considered themselves defiled. Okay, the woman that Jesus encounters in this story, guess what she is? A Samaritan. What is Jesus? A Jew. And then on top of that, when Jesus is encountering this woman at Jacob's well, not only is he a Jew in Samaria, he is a male encountering a woman, which is not like a typical thing. Like you, you know, walk in somewhere, you will have a conversation as a male or a female with the opposite sex, no big deal. Back then you didn't do that. That was abnormal. That, that wasn't something that the society said, man, that's great. And then on top of that, when he shows up to Jacob's well, he's there about the sixth hour, which is noon. Why? Why is that detail in this story? Because all of the women went to the well in the morning when it wasn't hot. But this woman was so despised by her own people that she went in the middle of the day. She couldn't even take the scrutiny and the pain. So not only was she, was she a Samaritan, not only was she a woman, but she was a woman who was even despised by her own people because of her lifestyle. She was the lowest of lows according to the cultural structures that were set up in this day which is what makes this whole story so shocking, and especially in Jesus' next, next statement in verse eight when he says this, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, this is kind of awesome. I heard one of my friends say this one time. He said, isn't it funny, just laugh at this for a second, okay, how it takes 12 dudes to do what it takes one woman to do? That's true, right? right? One lady coming to the, the well to fill up a bucket of water, six dudes to run to town to buy groceries. If you're a guy, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been rolling deep in the grocery store. How many times do you call your wife when you're in the grocery store? Hey, what aisle is that on? I don't know where to find this. Is that just me? Is that just me? Okay, it's just me. All right, great. Okay, all right. Verse nine, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. You start, to, you start to hear her. You start to hear her almost like turn in in shock and anger. What are you doing at my well? And what, what are you doing asking something from me? Why are you talking to me? See, what you see unfolding right in front of you is the scope of Jesus's love and grace. The scope of Jesus' love and grace. As a people, listen to me, this is really important. As a people, we have developed social constructs. We have put in play certain things that separate us from other people. Now, before we jump in and look at this whole situation that's going on right here between this Jew, Jesus, and this Samaritan woman, you're like, what? why, what's the big deal? It's only been 60 plus years in our own country where we would not let people of color walk into the same restaurant with somebody who had Caucasian colored skin. We're not as far away from John chapter four as you and I think we are. 
It's only been 60 years before we last told somebody that they had to sit in a certain seat on a bus, that they couldn't use a certain restroom that you would use. They even made baseball leagues to separate a white man and a black man from playing on the same field together. It hit every facet of our society, but here's what I love. Here's what I love. The gospel explodes those social constructs. It blows it up. It explodes the moral constructs of one person being better than the other based on their race, based on, based on their ethnicity, based on their socioeconomic status, on their ability or their inabilities. Remember one chapter earlier, Nicodemus, the up and up, the elite, the well thought of, he had it all. He had a house on a mountain in the gated community with the perfect view, with the big job that paid the bills, yet he was in the crosshairs of Jesus' love and grace. Now the down and out, the downtrodden, the despised, the neglected, the one holding the cardboard sign on the side of the road, the one living in a trailer off the beaten path, the one with a drug addiction. Are you hearing this church? The gospel of grace and love has in its crosshairs the one that votes on the left side of the aisle and the one that votes on the right side of the aisle. The gospel of grace and love has in its crosshairs the human born into a family of Ivy League graduates to the kid that's born in a tribe in Southeast Asia that can't read or write. The scope of the gospel of grace and love is not a cast net that covers this small little pocket and a small pond. The cast net of God's grace and love covers the ocean of humanity and nobody is not within its sight. Hear me very, very, very plainly, okay? The gospel is not just for the family that lives in the gated community on the mountain with a view. The gospel is for the person living in a tent camp right off of Long Shoals and I-26. It's for both. The gospel is for both. Now, this is why this is really important, okay? Two reasons. Number one, you and I are never above nor below the grace and love of God. No matter how good you think you are or how bad you know you are. The crosshairs of love of the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ are on our hearts. And that is a beautiful thing. May we never, ever, ever get over that reality. That's why we say preach the gospel to yourself daily over and over and over and over and over again. Remind yourselves, remind ourselves who we were and who we are in Christ. But then also number two, may it be true of Biltmore Church that we are not a church that looks exactly alike. May may we be a church where Republicans and Democrats are actually united in the thing that matters above anything, the gospel where our worship centers and our connect groups look way different than they do right now. Where the one struggling with their sexual identity is equally pursued as the one with a spouse and three kids. May we be a church that sees people with the eyes and the heart of Jesus 
Christ himself. May it be so. Now, okay, let's look, at, let's look at the second point for today, okay? Let's look at the depth of Jesus's love and grace. The depth of Jesus's love and grace. Verse 10, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, the woman said, you don't even have a bucket. And the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and the livestock. I love that. I actually love this, okay? She's straight up getting sassy with Jesus. She's like, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, who do you think you are? Verse 13, Jesus says, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never thirst again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up for him eternal life. Jesus is talking about salvation. He is offering salvation. Sir, the woman said, give me this water so that I don't have to get thirsty and come down here to draw water anymore. Now, pause. A lot of theologians note two different things happening. Some people say one thing, some people say another, okay? Some people say in verse 15, when she says, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here and have to draw water day after day, they, they say she's being sarcastic. But other theologians look at it and say, it's in this moment where a shift starts to happen. It's not sarcasm, it's desperation. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. And then in verse 16, this is great, okay? Jesus says, go, call your husband and come back here. And she says, I don't have a husband. You have correctly said, he said, I don't have a husband. For you have five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Okay, feels like a pretty hard shift in the conversation, right? You're like, okay, man, we're talking about wells. We're talking about thirsty. We're talking about, now all of a sudden, Jesus is like, skirt, does a 180, whips it, okay, in the parking lot, and he goes to husbands. Like, what, what's going on here? Some of y'all are like, this is why the Bible is really hard for me to understand. I just don't get, I don't get it. I don't get it. But I actually think the meaning is right here in front of us. You see, every day, this woman came to this well to get water. And she drank that jug that was full until it was empty. Until what? Her craving for more water comes back up. So she gets up, she goes back to that well, day in and day out. In the very same way, she's done the same thing with the desires of her flesh. She's gone to man after man, hoping to find fulfillment and life. She's looking for life, but that jar of happiness that she keeps going after keeps running out. She has, like C.S. Lewis said in the Screwtape Letters, An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. It's like the great theologian Morgan Wallen said, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet hole. All right, some of y'all don't know who that is. That's okay, all right. 
May I just ask you, what well do you keep going back to day in and day out that keeps leaving you thirsty? Never satisfied. Is it status within the community? You just wanna be known. And that's not even a bad thing. You just want people to like you. And then you mess up. So what do you try to do? You try to repair it. You keep doing this thing over and over and over. Is, that, is it climbing the ladder of corporate success only to have someone else get the job that you thought you were gonna get? Is it athletic success? I gave that up a long time ago. Is it relationships? Maybe you're just like this woman. You're a serial dater. You keep going from person to person to person. You see, the reality is, is that we are all drinking from a well that will never fully satisfy. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Now, I'm starting to feel a little bit sorry for this woman because what you notice in her conversation is she takes the conversation that Jesus is having with her and she deflects it to something else. Jesus starts to go for the heart and she starts to push it to something else, a cultural construct. She takes it to the differences between their two religions or their, their two cultural makeups and identities. Where Jesus starts to dig, she starts to deflect. Why? Well, if I'm being honest, I, I think we all kind of struggle a little bit with this woman in the same way. I think this woman wanted to be found. I think she wanted, that's why she kept going after relationship after relationship after relationship. She wanted, she wanted to be found by someone, but she was afraid to be seen. So she keeps deflecting. The walls go up. Anytime somebody gets really close to us, we wanna be found. We wanna be in proximity with people, but we don't want them to really see what's going on in the crevices of our heart. And so when people start to dig, you start to deflect. We don't want people to see just how bad it is deep down in that heart of ours. The reality is, and this is actually a, a beautiful truth, you cannot outrun the grace and love of God. You cannot go as deep as you think you can go. You cannot run as far as you think you can run. The psalmist says it in one, Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there, your hand will lead me. That's the story of God's people all throughout the Bible. Jonah, one of God's prophets. Hey, go there, no shot, I'm going somewhere else. Gets on a boat, what happens? Down goes Frazier, gets thrown in the water, swallowed up by a fish, okay? He's literally in the bowels of the boat, goes out to sea, running from where God is calling him to go, gets out in the middle of the sea, they throw him overboard, he's swallowed up by a fish, and then that fish takes him into the depths of the ocean. How much deeper can you possibly go? And even in the belly of the fish, in the depths of the ocean, what does Jonah have? An encounter of repentance with the living God. Yes, even there. Joseph sold into slavery by his own family. 
yet God. Jesus met Nicodemus where he was. She, he meets the Samaritan woman where she is and he meets you right where you are too. See, Jesus leaves no stone unturned. His love and grace meets you in the darkest pits and in your shallowest well. You know, um, when I was in middle school, this is like a really hard season to go back to only because it was middle school. I had some really bad acne. Okay, can anybody relate to that? Okay, great. I was the only one here. <laughs> I had a really bad acne and it got so bad that I went, I went to the, the doctor and they gave me Accutane. You guys remember that stuff? Woo, that's like poison, okay? Gave me Accutane and um, I took the Accutane and um, it started getting worse, right? So start, start taking the Accutane pill. And over the course of like three weeks, the stuff's not getting better. It's actually getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And so my mom takes me back to the doctor and the doctor said, listen, it's only going to get worse so it can get better. You got to go through the mess to get to the clearing. The woman in John 4 is caught in the messy middle of of sin and redemption. And when Jesus pulls back the curtain of what's going on there, she starts to deflect where God wants to dig deep so he can purge what's inside and bring about life. Where are you deflecting where the love and grace of God wants to dig? Where are you deflecting where the love and the grace of God wants to dig? She, he continues the discussion with the Samaritan woman and he begins to break down for her all these different constructs that even she has set up. Look in verse 21, Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews, we, we worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such a people to worship him. God is, verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in both spirit and in truth. Verse 25, the woman said to him, listen to this, this is great. I know that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then in verse 26, Jesus says to her, I the one who is speaking to you am he. Woo, could you imagine that moment where everything that you, that you knew to be true was now manifesting itself to be true right in front of you. The Messiah had come and she had an encounter with him right there at Jacob's well, the mundane aspect of life, the place that she went to day in and day out. And he had uncovered the depths of her heart. He had uncovered the sinfulness of her heart. And then look what happens. Look at the response to Jesus's love and grace. Verse 28, the woman literally left her water jar, the jar that she came with, the jar that was giving her satisfaction, the jar that was quenching her thirst. She left it, she goes into town and she tells all the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Woo, this is getting good. Verse 39, now many Samaritans, what people? 
Samaritans. Now, many Samaritans from that town, look, don't, do not miss this, believed in him because of what? Who said? The woman. Her natural response to the uncovering of sin was what? Worship, mission. I cannot keep such good news of the one who uncovered such gross depths of my heart, who has now looked at me and seen me, even though I was the lowest of lows, she goes and she tells. Jesus took the outcast and made her a mouthpiece. Isn't that what God does? Saul, the murderer, has an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus and becomes one of the greatest church planners the world's ever known, Paul. David, the shepherd boy, a king, later becomes an adulterer and a murderer and is later known as a man after God's own heart. Peter was a denier. He denied Jesus over and over again. And then Jesus looks at him and he says, upon you, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. The Samaritan woman, an adulterer to a missionary. Once you and I encounter Christ, it's all it takes for us to have a testimony. You, if you are in Christ, you have a testimony to the one that uncovered the depths and depravity of sin and brought you out and gave you and I new life. Look to Jesus for what he has done. He is the only one that can satisfy the longing, the thirst that you and I have day in and day out. He's not after the professional Christian that's got the seminary degree to go and tell people about Christ. He's looking for the average everyday person that says, Jesus is the only one that can redeem me from the pits of hell and bring me into the kingdom of his marvelous light. You now have a testimony to the grace and the goodness of God. God, that, friends, is the beauty of the gospel. No matter what background you come from, no matter what socioeconomic status you think you have, no matter what baggage you bring into the room, Jesus meets you right there, just like he did the Samaritan woman. He says, I see you. And I give to you the same thing that I give to all. Love, grace, forgiveness. See, what you see later in the passage is that the people came running back because of the testimony and then they see the glory of Jesus himself. They see him and they believe. Come and see, taste and see, drink from the well of love and grace. You know, the call of God to each one of us day in and day out is to repent and believe because the, the well of God's grace is deeper than you could ever imagine. You struggling with something? Repent, believe. Jesus isn't, he's not afraid of the deepest parts of your heart. He knows them. And he's uncovering them today for you to believe that the, that the water that he gives you will never leave you thirsty again. You a follower of Jesus? I guarantee you, if you're anything like me, you chase vain and empty pursuits day in and day out. Jesus' call is the same to us as it was to the Samaritan woman. Come today, drink from the well. It has no bottom. It is deeper than you could ever imagine. Now I'm alive to tell the story how I've overcome its goodness and mercy and the power of the blood. 
I'm so glad that my freedom, where I find life, I'm so glad that my freedom isn't based on what I've done, but it's goodness and mercy and the power of the blood. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for the gospel. God, I thank you that you rescued us and you redeemed us in our darkest places. And today, Father, I pray if there's anyone here that has not confessed that you are Lord, that they're running, that they're chasing after the thing that leaves them thirsty day in and day out, that you would draw them to yourselves today. Across all of our campuses, and for the next minute or two, we're gonna sing a song of worship and response. And maybe you just need to repent and believe and come back to the well and drink from it again. Our altar is open. You can come and drink from the well again, the well of living water for it never runs dry. Jesus, do your work today. Do your work in this place. You are God, you are good, and we give you glory. In your name we pray.